This is the Employment Law Show. And welcome to it. It's uh, it's set to go. It's Thursday. Hey, how are you? It's 633 schools here. And uh, joining me as well, it will be our good pal, Chris Justice, Amfiru Tamarkin, LLP. Really easy to uh, to reach out to Chris. And uh, you want to do it outside this half hour of the show. Here is uh, how that goes down. one 821 5900 1-855-821-5900. 5,900 email is help at employmentlawyer.ca for email. We'll try to get to some of those tonight. There are no dumb questions. It could be a simple question about uh, your job. That's fine. Bring it on. You may be asking something that hundreds of others uh, listening to the show are wondering the same thing, right? In the meantime, we're going to get to our uh, our show very shortly with Chris. I know he's got lots to discuss. And uh, the week uh, the week that was as well, case of the day, pal, what do you got cooking? Yeah, so this time around, I thought I'd actually talk about um, something that had happened in the courts in British Columbia. There were a number of employees that faced legal action from their former employer uh, for failing to provide proper notice before they quit. And this isn't something that comes up a whole lot in my in my practice, but I thought it would um, be interesting to raise the issue of whether employees are legally bound to provide a certain amount of notice before they Mm -hmm. resign from their positions, um, as well as whether employers can pursue uh, legal action against these employees if they fail to provide the required notice. And, you know, I think in this case, you'll always start from whether or not there's any term of your employment that speaks to resignation. A lot of times when people sign employment agreements, there's something in there that says, you know, in the event that you decide to resign, you will provide us with two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. Um, typically, it's two, but for more senior level employees, there could be more notice that's owed. So you always want to look there first, make sure, you know, what that period of time is. And ideally, of course, give your employer at least that much notice before quitting. Right. Um, but there are certain cir- circumstances where employees don't do this and the employer thinks, well, Maybe I have them on the hook for some damages, but actually employers not only have to show that there was a failure to provide notice, um, but also that there were certain losses or damages suffered by the business as a result of those employees failing to give that proper notice. And actually, these cases I was talking about from BC, um, they were dismissed uh, partly on the basis that the employer failed to show that there was any damage or loss suffered, but it's still something to be aware of when it comes to employees, making sure you abide by whatever contract you have. Um, but for employers too, kind of letting them know what more needs to be done after that to um, successfully get some action against those employees. Again, any of these issues, stuff like that, reach out to Chris on the uh, the other side, one 821 5900 We will cover on the show uh, this evening Pulse Termination Considerations. And if we got time, we'll get into fast facts about independent contractors. But Rob, thanks for hanging on for a moment, fella. How are you tonight? I'm good, thank you. Beautiful. What's on your mind? Uh, my daughter was working in a supervisory role um, with a full benefit package. Um, she's been sick now for basically it'd be a year in March and has been off work. Um, she went through and used her, her short-term disability. They told her to apply to EI. So she went on to EI and got sick coverage and then tried to get onto her long-term disability. But they're saying because she wasn't in the role for more than three months, she doesn't qualify for it. So now she's basically been going for the last few months with nothing. Um, the rest of her benefits are all in place. Like she still gets all of her health care, her dental, all that's there. But the, long-term disability is not effective. Is that something that's 
possible? Um, well, to be honest, it would probably come down to the terms of the long-term disability policy, or at least I would say that that would be a main contributor as far as, you know, under that particular policy, is there a certain time frame uh, in which someone has to work at a particular place in order to activate those benefits? So I think it could certainly be possible that the insurance side of things have a leg to stand on there, but it would probably okay. require at least a review of the policy itself because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of scenarios where insurers, of course, don't want to approve people for benefits, um, but do so in, in from a position that they actually um, don't have strength in. So I wouldn't put it past necessarily someone to, to sort of go around that or circumvent that in some way. But uh, I'd probably start there. And then it would just maybe be a matter of, you know, if you can get benefits, great. And if not, is there an expected return to work date? Because the employer still has to accommodate during this absence. And um, if, if that return to work date might be coming up soon, then hopefully that can avoid some of the issue. Yeah, she's still going for medical testing. They still don't really know what her issue is. Um, she's yeah. been sent all over the province to different specialists to find out. So um, we're just trying to figure out how best we can start to, to get her some, some kind of money flowing in. Yeah, Rob, I, I, could, I would say... I was oh, just going to say, ahead, I, I could I could suggest, Rob, that that number I give out all the time, uh, that one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Call that anyway, because as, yeah. as Chris, I'm sure, was about to elaborate, the other half of what the firm does is disability and injury law. So, and they kind of sometimes yeah. go hand in hand with an employer. Hence, the reason why the firm does both. So they've got the one two punch covered. So, yeah, I mean, on the other side, call that number and ask to speak to the disability department, and they'll they'll hook you up with uh, you know Tamar or James or one of our good lawyers on that side that Chris is very familiar with, and you know they can. Leave, you know, at least give that policy a, a once over and tell you, yeah, you've got uh, you got a leg to stand on, or uh, no, you're kind of uh, you're kind of scuppered. But they should be able to tell you for sure. You know what I mean? Great, yeah, appreciate absolutely. it, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Robbie. Appreciate yeah, the uh, phone call and uh, and follow up, brother. Let us know uh, let us know what happens for sure. But uh, there you go. That's uh, that's when it comes in handy to have both. You know what I mean, Chris? Um, you want yeah. if you got nothing else to cover, we'll get into our uh, main topic and more phone calls for sure. Post. Termination considerations. What do you think about that one? Yeah, so actually I was I wanted to talk about a number of things that often come up when yeah. someone's been let go and some of the main issues that I'll often discuss with clients or potential clients um, pretty much all the time. And when you get let go, you know, you might be in a bit of a, a sort of a friend, a bit of a, you know, state of, of mind, so to speak, as far as, you know, maybe if you're a long service employee, it might have been quite a traumatic loss to have lost your job and you got to kind of regather yourself. But a lot of people are a bit frantic and, you know, right, um, rightfully so. But also I want to make sure these people are, again, aware of sort of things they need to be looking at, focusing on um, when it comes to their employment rights. And so right. I thought I thought with these sort of considerations, we could kind of go through those main aspects um, one by one. Absolutely. And the first one you got here is, was the termination of my employment conducted in good faith? Break that down for me. Yeah. So one thing that comes up a lot is, you know, the question of whether I was let go in bad faith. You know, maybe maybe the reasoning behind my termination wasn't to my liking. And I take issue with the actual basis for the termination, not so much necessarily the termination, but at least the basis. And so then you get into things like, well, is there discrimination? You know, was there maybe a failure to accommodate? Um, maybe uh, there, there's discrimination on some other protected ground, um, or maybe there's a retaliation sort of incident where you issue a complaint or launch a complaint, and then you suffer a reprisal for, for the actions that, that you put forward. Maybe there's a valid complaint you have. 
and then you find yourself without a job. So I think, um, you know, the question of whether my employment was let go in good faith, I think it does need to be examined. Oftentimes, like I say, it is. And if there's an issue of discrimination or reprisal or retaliation, then absolutely that could be considered a bad faith manner of termination and, and basically allow you to get damages beyond the severance package itself. So that's sort of one example, I would say, or a couple examples. But there's also other aspects of how a termination can be carried out that could be considered bad faith. So for instance, um, there's been cases where people were let go the day before Christmas oh. and the court took, you know, yeah, exactly. The court took particular exception to that. Um, you know, there's actually, depending on the the timing of the termination, there's going to be slower or quicker periods in the industry that might actually contribute to a bigger severance package. Um, those are examples too, though, where maybe someone gets paraded around the office um, and there's some sort of humiliation or demeaning aspect to the way they're let go. Um, or of course, you know, a lot of times I'll see people uh, having allegations of cause levied against them. And we find out pretty quickly that the employer doesn't actually have cause. So yeah. like I say, there's four, five, six different examples of ways in which I suppose someone's employment could end in bad faith, which could then, like I said before, give someone the ability to go after more than just uh, severance, but actually damages for the way this was carried out. And you mentioned severance. That's another point here when uh, talking about post-termination considerations. Is the severance pas- uh, package offered fair and reasonable? I bet you we know the answer to that one already. Yeah, most often the answer is no. The package you are given uh, when you are let go is not fair and reasonable. You absolutely should not be signing anything before getting some legal advice. But this is another one of the main questions, you know, assuming that let's say there's no bad faith manner of dismissal and someone was just let go, say legitimately for, you know, reorganization or restructuring or something along those lines then you still, of course, want to make sure that you get a fair and reasonable severance package as far as the number of weeks or months that are on offer. And so that's that's one sort of part of the equation is how many weeks or months are they offering me? Because a lot of times, whatever they offer, usually you're looking at triple or quadruple the amount um, that's yeah. actually fair compared to what you're being given. And then you also want to look at, well, are they including things like my bonus? Are they including things like my pension, my benefits, et cetera? So you want to try to have everything incorporated as well. And uh, and then even sometimes they'll only take uh, an annual number based on the lowest of your last three years, let's say. And it may not even be reflective of what your annual wage is going forward. And then you kind of got to fight them a little bit on that. So you definitely want to pay attention to the severance package itself. What does it include? And, and making sure, of course, that you get what's fair and reasonable. We'll take a short break. A few more talking points when it comes to the post-termination considerations. Chad, then we'll slide on down to Fast Facts about independent contractors. The Thursday night edition Employment Law Show continues. Hang in there. Welcome back to the Employment Law Show. Back to our first topic. Uh, Chris, that is post-termination considerations. Third point is this. Is there something that limits my entitlement to my full severance? Because we often talk about, you know, being denied what you're really owed. So uh, break that down for me, pal. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times, of course, I'll be telling people what their potential severance entitlements are, what the best case scenario is. You know, I'll factor things in like how old they are, how long they were with the company, what their position was. And, you know, in in a lot of cases, best case scenario in this country anyways, could be 24 to 26 months. But there could be things out there that limit those potentials or that, that limits that potential in terms of getting your maximum severance. And one of those things could be a contract, of course. You know, a lot of people 
um, may not have thought at the time they signed that the contract was of any significance as far as being a negative, but then they get let go. I asked them to provide me with the last contract they signed. And then, you know, lo and behold, you look in and you find a clause there that deals with termination. And usually the intention is to say, should we terminate your employment at some time in the future? You know, we'll, we'll restrict your payment to the bare minimums that's owed under law. And again, people don't really think much of it at the time, but it can come back to bite them later on. Now, fortunately, I think for most people, even if there is a signed contract and a termination section, that section, based on my experience anyways, is, is oftentimes not drafted as well as it needs to be from the company's perspective. And, and there can be some issues with its enforceability, which is good for those who may have signed something and are worried whether or not this section is going to affect them negatively. On the whole, they don't typically end up being drafted that well. But that still doesn't mean you shouldn't be getting legal advice before signing something um, and, and paying close attention to the termination clause and getting a lawyer to look at the language in there and what it's exactly saying. Because it does matter, the language. And even if there's uh, one or two things that are off, um, that could spoil everything for the company. So it's important to look at that. But the contract is definitely one of the biggest things that could limit someone's entitlement. And another thing, of course, is if you get the package and you sign the release, you know, thinking, okay, I've been let go. They're offering me what I think is fair. But um, so I'm going to sign the release. Here you go. I'll take my money. I mean, I just had a call the other day where someone was given a, a package and they signed the release. And then they asked me whether they could go back and sort of renegotiate no. for something better. And exactly, you know, 99 times out of 100, unless there's some element of severe duress and, and maybe unconscionability and coercion, um, you can't go back after that point. So again, you might think that that's a very good package to begin with and then find out, yeah, that you took one third of, of what you could have got. But that's another clear example of something that's going to limit your rights. And then the, the last thing I was going to talk about as far as limiting rights could be what your future holds in terms of, are you going to find another job? You know, you've been let go January 1st. Well, if you end up getting a job January 2nd, as unlikely as that may be, mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be a different understanding of what your rights are versus somebody who, let's say, goes unemployed for a year without any source of income. You know, everything else being the same, the person who was able to find their job a bit sooner, um, you know, could have their full entitlements affected as well. But those are some of the main ones as far as limiting someone's entitlement. And, you know, and three three points under what you just said there. Number one, you know, you mentioned about signing off on the package and, you know, not calling you and realizing you got maybe a third of what you yeah. could have. It's a good time to throw it out there, man. Anytime you, you, you receive that package or just for interest sake, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. There's a severance calculator. It's bang on. Give it a shot, even if you haven't lost your job, just to see what it would be. Make it a home game. Everybody bet what they think their severance would be, and then go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, yeah. try the severance calculator, and you'd be like, ooh, I was, uh, I was not even close. So do I'm that before calling Chris, right? Exactly. And as far as, you know, like you said, I guess – it, it depends too if you're you know if if you're in the industry where there's not a lot of hiring or if you're a fiduciary CEO I mean it's going to take you a lot longer as opposed to being a barista I mean you mm -hmm. know you're expected to be working a lot sooner than than a, a position with more authority or a rare position that said is it is it always advisable just in case you do get a job in the next week say you're owed eleven months severance we'll say a year severance are you always trying to get a lump sum? In case of, you know, three weeks after you get your severance package, you get another job, that's okay, I got a lump sum, as, op as opposed to pay continuance, which I imagine would be cut short if you find a job early, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So there is some consideration as far as how do I want this paid out? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, you'll see situations where an employer says, okay, we're letting you go. Here's a big chunk of money up front, no strings attached, sign the release. And then there's other scenarios where the company's going to say, you know what, we're just going to keep you on payroll for a year. And if you end up finding a job, let's say we're going to claw some of the outstanding money back or, or you know, right. take that ourselves kind of thing. And, and that does end up being a consideration in a lot of cases. You know, is it more advantageous for me to maybe take a lump sum, maybe if I have to take a bit of a discount because I might have in my mind that I'm going to find a job or I might have something in the works? Um, or is it better to maybe take that sort of salary continuance structure and there might be a condition attached, but you may have the potential actually to get more severance out of a company by doing it that way. So that um, I think in a lot of ways comes down to how confident somebody is in securing that new job. Um, but yeah, there certainly can be a point in time where it becomes in your best interest to get a lump sum payment and get in, get out almost. And then as you say, John, you know, you sign the release, you get your lump sum, you happen to start a job, you know, a couple weeks later, well, it is what it is. The deal's been done. You get the money, and now you get to start that new job and actually yeah. make, maybe make a bit of a windfall. Which kind of relates to the uh, the last point in the question here when we're talking about post-termination considerations. And it, it's going to sound kind of funny, but it's, you know, do I have to look for a new job after I've been terminated? I guess, you know, unless you've nailed the lotto max and you're looking for a private island, not a job, <laughs> that's different. But uh, what, does it, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, and this is more from a legal perspective. You know, do right. I have an obligation to look for work? Um, I've just mentioned how finding a job and making some money, if you haven't, you know, let's say settled your case, could affect potentially how much you get. But do you actually have an obligation? And in general, when you're let go, you know, without cause and there's no, I suppose, issue of maybe disability, right? Because, you know, there's certain situations where you lose your job and you're actually not even capable of looking for another job, or maybe you get forced to to resign almost, and there's a lot of stress and anxiety around. And, and you can't actually look for a job. So barring certain exceptions, generally speaking, there is an obligation to give what they say reasonable efforts to look for other employment. And a lot of employers are going to be aware of this and think, okay, well, I know they've got this obligation generally on them. Maybe I'll wait it out a bit. Maybe they'll get a job. I'll save myself some money. Or I might attach a condition to the settlement where, you know, if they get something, I get to I get to claw some of the money back, and that's kind of where that comes from. Is is the law itself actually saying, you know, look, you are deserving of a fair package, but there's a corresponding obligation on your end to generally look, and it's a bit of a catch twenty two, of course, because you know you get a job that's great, and most people, like you say, are not you know massive you know massive wealth around them, so they got to get a job, they got to earn a living, and if you get something that's great for your life, it's not always great for your case. But then on the other hand, if you don't get a job, that's going to cause some stress, but maybe almost keep a greater portion of your severance entitlement live and, and ongoing. So it's a, it's a tricky situation, but I think people do need to know that there is a bit of a connection between looking for work and being let go. And I know a lot of people will say to me, well, Chris, what do my job search efforts matter at all to the company? Who cares if I get a job the next day after I'm let go? I was there for 20 years. I deserve two years of severance. And, you know, generally it just doesn't always work that way. Yeah. Want to move down with the uh, remaining couple minutes here and get a few of these talking points. And that is fast facts about independent contractors. The first one is, is super important. That is the law determines. The law determines whether you are an employer or a contractor, not you, not your employer, not your pal you work for. It's all about the law, yeah? Hey, absolutely. And, and independent contractors is a, is a key issue. Of course, if you're 
considered an independent contractor, you're not generally entitled to what employees get, um, which includes severance. But if you're not, and maybe you've been misclassified, then you absolutely are. So there's a lot to gain and lose when it comes to, am I an independent contractor or not? And you know, to your first point, yes, the law determines whether this is the case. A lot of employers will say, no, 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 you're an independent contractor for ABC reason, but they're not the ones that decide it. Or you may even think, oh, I've signed some contract that calls me an independent contractor. And again, it's not you either that decides it's the law. And the law is going to look at the actual relationship that you have. You know, are you somebody who has, you know, multiple customers on the go? Um, or are you working for one employer exclusively and your day-to-day is very much similar to that of an employee's day-to-day? So the law will be what looks at it um, and determines what the classification is, and there's a number of factors that are going to go into that. And that uh, the second point kind of leads into that, and that, that is a misclassified employee generally works under the direction of a sole company or employer. That's a good place to start, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it. Uh, you know, usually those misclassified work for just one company. You've got a boss; they tell you what to do. You know where to go. And a true contractor, as I say, is more of a a gun for hire, so to speak. You've got a lot of customers, a lot of clients. There's no exclusivity. You basically do what you want. You come in, you come out. There's no set schedule. Um, but if you're somebody who's showing up five days a week for one particular company and they're calling you an independent contractor, but you're, you know, you've got that day to day that very much looks, smells and feels like that of an employee employer relationship, then there's a very, very good chance that the law is going to look at and say, no, this is more like an employee scenario. So therefore, you know, the rights and entitlements should flow from that. Yeah, if it's you know Chris Justice Plumbing and Electrical, you drive around in a van. You're an independent contractor because you have several clients that uh, throughout the day that you work, you don't work for anybody. You do the job, you leave. You go on to the next client, you do the job, you leave. That's that's basically a true independent contractor, right? Yeah, yeah. Although there are scenarios where I could have Chris Incorporated, um, but <laughs> I'm only dealing with one company. You know, I know a lot of cases involve people who. Maybe they have their own registered company or their own name, and maybe they do invoice the company in a way that's not customary in an employee relationship. And maybe they even pay their own taxes um, or remit their own HST to the government, for example. But even if all those things are true, there can be a whole host of other things that are also true that sway the balance in favor of the employee or I should say the individual um, and then make that determination ultimately be that they are an employee. So a lot of people think, okay, because one, two, or three things are true and maybe atypical of an employee relationship, then therefore I'm an independent contractor when that's just not simply the case. And in a lot of these cases, people are being misclassified and it really yeah. is the difference between getting nothing and upwards of two years severance. And that'll do it for another show. Appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. And you want to reach out to Chris and his team now with any other questions during the week, during uh, any time. You'll leave a message even, 1-855-821-5900 and help at employmentlawyer.ca. And that website, use it, trust me, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca as well. We'll catch you next time right here on the Employment Law Show. Enjoy the rest of your night.